Saurabh Sharma. I'm Inez Stepman. I'm Ben Weingarten. And I'm Amber Duke. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have a fantastic show today. We're going to have Ben talking about this new code of ethics that the Supreme Court has adopted under pressure from the far left. Amber's going to be talking about the RNC under Ronna McDaniel, the good, bad, and the ugly. Uh, I'll be talking about the Biden administration's chokehold on AI, their attempt to make it woke. And Inez will be talking about the sacking of Suela Braverman, the Home Secretary in the United Kingdom, and what that all means. We'll start now with Ben. Thanks, Harab. And uh, yeah, the latest news out of the Supreme Court is that they will be adopting a so-called code of conduct, which according to the commentary delivered, appended to this new code, codifies what already existed, which raises the question of why they had to issue this document in the first place. And I want to frame my view on this purported code of conduct with the in the kind of paradigm that I've laid out before, which is that I see sort of a two-step process that's being played out by the left when it comes to all things related to lawfare. One is obviously to use the law enforcement apparatus as a weapon against their political foes. And then two is to delegitimize and discredit the Supreme Court, which is the final backstop against the assaults on civil liberties of wrong thinkers in this country. So this whole so-called ethics and code of conduct fight, I view as one leg of a multi-leg battle that started at least with Borking, went to the high-tech lynching of Clarence Thomas, the Kavanaugh camper, the Dobbs leak, and then the associated intimidation campaign against the justices. And now under Biden, first there was a sort of technical argument of, well, let's have a commission to look at justifying packing the court or otherwise changing its entire structure in toto. But then there's been this new effort, this new campaign to go after not just the spouses of justices, but the friends of justices as well under the guise of ethics, that essentially you're not allowed to have friends who are wealthy if you were a, I guess, so-called conservative or originalist or however we want to characterize the jurisprudence of those appointed by Republican presidents who've been under assault. Uh, this culminated nearly with threatened subpoenas of friends of Clarence Thomas by Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And there has been a long push for the Judiciary Committee to bring the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee to bring uh, the SCOTUS to heel, uh, including with this hectoring over their, there's ethics problems on the court and there needs to be some form of code of conduct. And there was legislation that would have essentially forced the court to uh, potentially create this code. But now the, co the court has stepped forward itself. And this is textbook Roberts court here because the chief justice has always talked about the need to protect and defend the institution. And ironically, the steps that he always takes to protect and defend the institution end up undermining the institution because it, it ends up caving the institution to its worst critics who ultimately just want to view it as a vehicle for progressive dominance. And so that is the context in which I see 
this otherwise you know, relatively on its merits inoffensive code that was put forth. It's important to note, just reading a little bit from the text, they say the court has long had the equivalent of common law ethics rules that is a body of rules derived from a variety of sources, including statutory provisions, the code that applies to other members of the federal judiciary, ethics and advisory opinions issued by the Judicial Conference Committee on Codes of Conduct and Historic Practice. The absence of a code, however, has led in recent years to the misunderstanding that the justices of this court, unlike all other jurists in this country, regard themselves as unrestricted by any ethics rules. That right there is the key. It tells you exactly that it is Roberts trying to kowtow to the leftists who are unappeasable, obviously, when it comes to the court. So I've long felt that ultimately, to the extent the court does not bow in the face of the mob, and this represents maybe the first major bow, I guess, since probably Obamacare, in terms of how substantial it is that there was a cave here, uh, I think ultimately it augurs infinitely worse. And you know, you'll notice that, for example, Chuck Schumer has come out and said this was a good first step. Democrats are delighted that this is an initial step. But of course, it anticipates far more caves to come. And at the end of this code, they talk about how the court's going to do all these things to reassess its policies and such. There was only one redeeming element of this code, in my view. Uh, there's a there's one clause in it which says a justice justice should not hold membership in any organization that practices invidious discrimination on the basis of race, sex, religion, or national origin. Uh, so this seems to be a, a subtle dig at Senator Whitehouse, uh, maybe inadvertently, maybe intentionally. Uh, but if you look at the sum and substance of it. This document should have never had to be promulgated. And if you give an inch to arsonists who want to destroy an institution, they're obviously only going to get more aggressive in smelling blood in the water. Ultimately, where do I think this goes? At the most extreme, I think to the extent the court does not ultimately cave on far bigger issues, uh, recusal among them. And there is a lot in this document about how the standards for recusal are very high. And that's obviously, I think, an, an implicit defense to some extent of Justice Thomas and others on the court have been attacked by these fraudulent claims of ethics violations and such. Uh, but ultimately, I think there might be a nullification crisis in this country over the court. I think that is, to the extent the court doesn't bow, the discrediting and delegitimizing is ultimately laying an information operation, essentially to say, we are going to ignore the court if it doesn't rule in accord with progressives on the issues that are most dear to them. So I see this as part and parcel of a disastrous and destructive effort. Uh, I'm curious if you think this is going to stem the tide of the progressive onslaught or only accelerate it when it comes to the court. Well, Ben, you're obviously I, right about each step of this. Um, and we've been calling this from the beginning, from the minute that first ProPublica story, you know, came out and then the increasing desperation and like ordinary course of affairs uh, that has been written about as scandal in order to try to attempt to delegitimize the court and to pave the way in the public perception that the court, because it is now controlled now with those Trump appointees controlled by the right, um, that the court itself as an institution is illegitimate. I, I do think, um, so I think you're right to bring it all the way back to Bork, right? And we've seen this sort of chain of, of delegitimization and abuses that have gone on, I mean, right up to the leak that happened um, about uh, during the Dobbs deliberations, right? So I, I think it's actually very significant that the court can no longer, the court of all places, the Supreme Court can no longer maintain unwritten rules of decorum. 
because one side of the political fights and the philosophical fights that are going on um, in, in all of our institutions, one side will not respect those kinds of common rules um, about the other side. And the fact that even that they have to come out with this kind of written code of conduct, it is, even if if sort of um, facially unobjectable and unobjectionable, it, it is very much, um, it, as you say, an attempt to appease those who cannot be appeased because they fundamentally challenge the underlying legitimacy of anything that isn't wholly controlled by the left. And this is this is not going to to solve their problem. It's only going to make it worse. And I, I think what just one final thing. I'm basically agreeing with Ben on all all his points here. But the the, the final point that I do also agree with Ben on um, is is that you know Justice Roberts, his entire uh, you know, sort of outlook and legacy has about is is about trying to maintain that kind of public legitimacy for the court. But he's always aiming in exactly the wrong direction. He doesn't worry at all um, about maintaining legitimacy. For example, uh, with with you know <laughs> people who actually do believe in constitutionalism, originalism, the rule of law. Right when he made that atrocious, um, basically non legal decision in the Obamacare case. Um, and you can see here that this kind of chasing legitimacy from the left uh, is, is didn't work then, and it's not going to work now. And it is exactly the kind of wrongheaded mentality that I think that has defined um, the Chief Justice's outlook. Uh, fortunately, it's not really, quote unquote, his court anymore, but I think it really has defined his outlook and what's wrong with it. I find I it kind of ironic as well. I guess I'll keep going. Sorry, Sarab. Um, I find it kind of ironic that the same people who are chastising Clarence Thomas for allegedly allowing money to sway his judicial opinions, which is ridiculous on its face, right? Because Clarence Thomas has never wavered on his ideology because of money from, from a friend or a friend taking him out on a vote or whatever the allegations were from ProPublica. Just the idea that he would allow that to challenge his his uh, judicial viewpoint is is just on its face, pretty absurd. But the same people who are freaking out about these reports and claiming that Clarence Thomas is corrupt and uh, and basically at the whims of, of billionaires are the same people who want to use uh, essentially violent intimidation as a means of swaying the court's opinion, right? So they think that it's perfect, perfectly acceptable to protest outside of Supreme Court justices' homes, which is illegal in many places, uh, particularly in Virginia, where quite a few of the justices live, um, and arguably against federal code, um, to the point that uh, there was an attempted assassination of one of these justices, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. They see no problem with that, but they think that um, Clarence Thomas being friends with a wealthy person is what is actually delegitimizing the court. And I just find that irony to be quite hilarious. I think this is a moment where we have to be reminded that whether it's democracy or liberalism or in this case norms, what the left actually means when it comes to these hoary terms that they use in the public square is they win and you lose. And so because the Supreme Court has started occasionally delivering some conservative wins, the entire institution must be delegitimized. And if they ever did take it back, it would be instantaneously made a sacred element of our democracy. Again, there is no principle undergirding their approach to this issue. And the sooner that Justice Roberts realizes that, the sooner he'll be able to sleep easier at night rather than hoping to appease the left and somehow have this broadly legitimate court that he aims for in what is still a very deeply divided country.
Absolutely. And I think that's my cue to go ahead and move on to the next topic. So uh, let's talk about Ronna McDaniel, because the Republican National Committee under her leadership has been under fire for quite some time now. I think the, the biggest indication that perhaps her chairmanship was in trouble was after the 2022 midterms, when Republicans really failed to capitalize on what everyone thought was going to be a red wave in the wake of Joe Biden having historically low approval ratings, the economy being in shambles, that horrific withdrawal from Afghanistan, and it didn't happen. Republicans really underperformed in terms of what all of the polls said was were going to happen and what all of the political prognosticators thought was going to happen. Ronna McDaniel faced a challenge at that time from Harmeet Dillon and several other individuals who were trying to take her out. But she got a tacit endorsement, for, uh, endorsement from former President Donald Trump and managed to stay in her position uh, with the help of the voters on the RNC's board. Um, but her tenure has been fraught even before that. I mean, she failed to deliver even a modicum of success in the 2018 midterms. Democrats had a historic gain in the House of Representatives in that election cycle in 2020, failed to get the incumbent president reelected and also performed quite poorly on the congressional level as well. And her name has come up again in this off-year 2023 election because Republicans failed to take the Kentucky governor's race with Attorney General Daniel Cameron running against Democratic incumbent Andy Bashir, and then also lost the Virginia House of Delegates and failed to gain a majority in the Virginia State Senate. And I just like to preface with saying that there are a lot of reasons why those elections did not go Republicans way and certainly not all roads point to Ronna McDaniel at the RNC, but she was criticized on the national stage when Vivek Ramaswamy at the recent GOP primary debate called on her to come up on the stage and resign on NBC News um, on their broadcast and offer to cede his time to her, which was Hilarious, but also uh, obviously getting at a deeper discontent with the way that her tenure has gone at the RNC. And specifically in Virginia, there are now allegations that she did not give financing to the Virginia Republican Party when they asked for it. Rich Anderson, who is the chair of the Republican Party of Virginia, told my friend Larry O'Connor that he had asked for money in the summer ahead of the elections. And Ronna McDaniel refused from the RNC to give them any money. She claims a different story that apparently the Republicans in Virginia told her that they didn't need her help. And I think the rub here is that Ronna McDaniel is talking about Spirit of Virginia, which is a PAC associated with Governor Glenn Youngkin versus the Republican Party of Virginia. Those are two separate entities. And at the end of the day, the RNC should be dealing with state parties, not with PACs associated with governors. And so if the Republican Party of Virginia asked for money and Ron has said, well, Team Youngkin already told me that they didn't need it, then that is a, a bucking of the proper hierarchy that the Republican National Committee is supposed to abide by. And so that's a serious problem because some of these races, particularly the tight races, in Virginia Beach, in uh, Newport News, and some of those other swing districts, the uh, the candidates came down to you know five thousand, ten thousand votes to flip the state senate and regain or keep the majority rather in the Virginia House of Delegates. And so that little bit of money, I think he was asking for maybe a million dollars to match what the DNC poured in to the race, would have made a huge difference. 
And so was she not involved because of her ego of the of Team Youngkin telling her that they didn't need it or whatever else, whatever other reason she had, she's failed to explain. Instead, she's gone on essentially an apology tour with the mainstream media, hopping on CNN and MSNBC to explain to people like Kristen Welker and Dana Bash why she didn't give them money and why she was really proud of what the RNC did in this race. So question to the group, do you think that Ronna McDaniel has any legitimacy left as chairwoman of the RNC? And if not, who would be a legitimate challenger to her reign there? I'll go ahead and start. Look, I, I think that the question with all of these leadership elections is always compared to what. And so whether it was in the case of McCarthy or McConnell, or in this case, McDaniel, as Matt Gates likes to call it, it's all McLeadership. Um, you know, it, it, it's always a, a matter of comparing uh, to, to what. And if you actually audit the roster of national committee men and women to the RNC, I promise you, you're not going to find rock-ribbed national conservatives from top to bottom. It is a dinosaur population. Um, for many of the people who do that role, it is the, the, the ability to go to that RNC quarterly meeting at a five-star resort somewhere in the country is the highlight of their social calendar. They're very jealously guardians of power. And um, it's, it's not entirely clear at all if any of them in particular are any better than Rana. And so it's always important to ask compared to what in this case. The other thing I'll say is, and my friend Luke Thompson is one of the smartest people on campaigns and elections, um, would, would, would yell at me if I didn't say this, is we do have expectations in modern times of our political parties that don't entirely hold up to scrutiny. After McCain-Feingold, which was the big campaign finance reform in the early 2000s, Political parties aren't actually allowed to do the things that the kind of uh, Civics 101 version of political parties would lead you to believe. The RNC actually is not allowed to raise all that much money. It has very strict limits on how much money it can raise, and um, it has very strict limits on, on how it can even spend that money. And so that's none of that is to excuse Ronna McDaniel's leadership. It's to say that um, th there's a lot of different causes for the dysfunction in Republican organization. The, the common denominator to all of it is that the Republican Party is actually extraordinarily poorly organized. We have a lot of people who talk for a living on television. We have a lot of people who write fancy essays, but a lot of uh, people who uh, should be operators just, just don't exist. And that's a giant problem that needs to be solved over the coming decades. Yeah, yeah, speaking and, and of more can... structural. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to um, respond to Sarap's point about you know, the, there are other factors, of course, that went into these races. And I, I just find it interesting that, uh, that Rana, um, is only coming under this major scrutiny now when these two examples of Kentucky and Virginia were not great examples of an RNC failure in that Virginia was going to be a, a real statistical improbability for Republicans to take the house of delegates and the state Senate. And then in Kentucky, you had like a 60% approval rating Democratic incumbent who has a family name with a long line of political experience in Kentucky. Sorry, go ahead, Inez. Um, no, I mean, I, I don't know much. I don't pretend to know much about the machinations of, of the Republican Party uh, at, at this level. Um, but I, I will say, so before we had the results last time we did this, this podcast, I, I floated a, an idea um, before we knew it was going to happen. And I, I think it, there's more evidence for it now. Uh, than when I initially floated it. I think the Republican Party is probably shifting to a party 
um, where there we have a lot of voters who are very, very detached from the political system and mistrustful of the political system for all kinds of good reasons that we lay out every week on this podcast. And for that reason, we have to stop thinking about the Republican Party as the party that's going to overperform in midterms um, and in off-year elections. Um, and I think that that is just something that, again, I can't I can't uh, definitively prove, but I think the last few midterms, so to that extent, I don't know that this is Ronna McDaniel's fault. Um, not that I, I necessarily want to defend her either. Um, I, I think the the larger objection or, or the, the deeper worry that I have about the Republican Party um, and, and Ronna McDaniel has been the failures to do the things that are not, um, you know, part of this larger forces in, in uh in the country, right? So some of the lawfare that Ben has discussed over and over again, the fact that the Republican Party has been essentially absent in a lot of the the scuffles over what the rules of the road are going to be with regard to voting. Like these are the sorts of things that I would expect the Republican Party itself um, to be aggressive about. And, and it really hasn't been, it's been incompetent. So to that extent, I think that's like, I'm much more concerned about that than I am about to, to Amber's point about the fact that, you know, in blue Virginia, it didn't work out very well this time. Yeah. I mean, I view this as sort of a symptom of a broader issue, which is the chasm between Republican establishment. This goes back decades and where the voters are, where the energy in the party is to Saurav's point, you know, to some extent, these are generational differences. And then to some extent, they're ideological differences. But from the time of my earliest, you know, memories of political life, Always, the establishment has been great at blowing up and destroying conservatives and insurgent kind of candidates and very poor at beating the other side and snatches defeat from the jaws of victory repeatedly. Um, you know, this has been called the sabotage Republicans. Uh, there are some other names for it as well. And I think ultimately what it comes down to is what is the purpose of a party if it's not organizing to win elections and to ruthlessly take the fight to the other side. And also to Saurabh's point, you know, as a talker and sometimes I guess essayist or opinion person, he's absolutely right. There need to be more knife fighters. There need to be people who are very strategic and go about defeating the other side using any and all means possible and fighting just as hard and tough as the other side, as we've talked about before, about knowing what time it is. So to that end, who would be best positioned to lead a party in the way that the left would lead were they in our shoes? If the left had all of the deficits that we faced in terms of uh, they've basically crafted rules that they are they've tailor made to be exploited based upon where their demographics are uh, and, and the strategies that they've tailored over time. And I'm speaking here, of course, of you know, mass mail and voting ballot harvesting, all of the election integrity eviscerating measures that are on the books, and then their massive lawfare apparatus that goes along with it. Does the Republican Party have any answer to that? Why should I expect that 2024 won't end up pretty much exactly the same as 2020? If you want to make a case that you ought to be running the RNC, make your case for why 2024 won't be 2020. And I haven't necessarily seen anyone who could lead necessarily make that compelling case, but that seems like it should be a baseline qualification. Are we going to learn anything from the past or are we going to continue with the insanity of repeating it and expecting different results? So transitioning now, 
This week, I wanted to talk about artificial intelligence, specifically what the Biden administration is doing in order to heavily curtail the technological progress of AI. I don't really want to go super deep into the technical aspects of this, but I think it's a very valuable story of how public policy works on the left of center, what it's used for, and it exposes some of the deficits we have on the right of center. But first, the context. So the Biden administration issued at the end of October an executive order on, quote, the safe, secure, and trustworthy development and use of artificial intelligence. For any of us who are aware of some of the uh, depredations of the modern left, that is Orwellian sounding language, and it's absolutely terrifying, and we are correct to feel that way. It's also a reminder of why conservatives need a theory of government that's not just don't tread on me or leave me alone, but I'll get to that later. Um, what this uh, executive order is for is basically to respond to this very sudden appearance on the scene of generative AI, large language models that have really disrupted the consumer market, the business world, the stock market, and everyone's conception of what technology is for and the effect it's going to have on all of us. There's an entire basket of concerns that people have ranging from simple stuff like the intellectual property of writers and authors getting appropriate attribution and payment to the crazy, you know, how 2000 or 3000, I forget, um, you know, robots going to kill us all. Um, all of those issues have legitimate public policy debates that need to happen around them. And the left-wing policy ecosystem has been much faster at actually having that con conversation internally. And so that's what resulted in this executive order. And there's two really big concerning elements about it. One is in terms of what it's going to do to distort the market in terms of favoring these giant incumbents. And the second is what it's uh, what it's going to do to speech and ideological policing on the internet. I'll start with the latter. Um, there's a line in it that says, artificial intelligence policies must be consistent with my administration's dedication to advancing equity and civil rights. My administration cannot and will not tolerate the use of AI to disadvantage those who are already too often denied equal opportunity and justice. Pretty serious language. What exactly does it mean in this context? It means that the Biden administration expects to totalitarianly police artificial intelligence and any sort of um, data modeling that happens in in computation in order to make sure it does not uh, go crosswise with left-wing pieties. It is an absolute disaster. And make no mistake, this will be used in order to extend the already long arm of the federal government and the legacy of the 1965 Civil Rights Act into ever more totalitarian uh, enforcement of the equity agenda, which is ultimately uh, an agenda powered by resentment against straight, white, male, et cetera, uh, figures in American life. The, the government intends on intimately involving itself in all of the details of how AI is implemented and propagated, and it's extremely dark. And relatedly, because of this extremely intrusive regulation that is often also paired with national security concerns, this regulatory infrastructure is going to make it extremely difficult for small companies, the startup ecosystem, to actually succeed. The open source, open internet that people grew up with in the 90s and early 2000s is going to be limited and curtailed off and only allowed um, to uh, exist for giant monopolies and companies funded to the tune of $200 billion in service of the god of quote-unquote safety, um, which is why that, that term in the EOS headline is so dangerous. Um, 
I'm of the belief, and, and I think that that conservatives should be of the belief that the best way to be safe is to out innovate the threats that we face, uh, whether it's China or other foreign competitors. But in this case, um, the, the left of the center is trying to make sure that safety is, is, is front and center in order to suppress political dissent and its domestic political enemies. And it's important to realize that if this had happened during a conservative administration, I don't think the result would have been much better. In fact, I think the result would have been exactly the same, not because conservatives would have passed a suite of regulatory guidance that would have been um, woke. But what would have happened is that the corporate sharks that circle around the GOP that have so much influence over elected officials would have deterred regulation at all. There would have been all the squidding sprayed about, well, we are concerned about this, that, or the other. The clock would have been run out. And the next time we had the democratic control of the government, they would have passed the exact same executive order anyway, or perhaps even further. It would have mirrored the big tech fight during the Trump administration where uh, big tech spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on conservative a movement advocacy to make sure that nothing happened. And it's something we need to be very vigilant about um, on any big technological issue or any regulatory issue um, in the coming years. So I'll make a uh, minor point here. Uh, first of all, the uh, the Orwellian nature of the language about safety and such, it, it's very well taken the point that this is always a Trojan horse for using uh, the uh, crises in national security or public health or any other threats that can be perceived as potentially existential to our infrastructure, so-called, are used to ultimately eviscerate our rights and cement the power of the regime. And one of the tells in here is that, of course, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is supposed to be intimately involved in evaluating AI-related risks and overseeing, essentially, how ultimately this executive order is interpreted and what rules are promulgated. And as folks know, as I've been pounding the table on here for months now, CISA was the tip of the spear of the federal government-led censorship regime. Uh, and there's a reason for that. They use this same sort of Orwellian view that everything is infrastructure. According to the current director of CISA, cognitive infrastructure is the most critical infrastructure. In other words, Mind control is a matter of national security. And so the regulation of your speech is just something that we do to protect public health and public safety. If that is what CISA, an integral DHS subagency associated with this executive order, is about, you can imagine ultimately, and in some ways we can't even imagine, how disturbing and dystopian the world is that we're going to enter with this regime warding over the development of AI in this country, and of course, using it as a pretext to hyper-regulate virtually everything that has any sort of power or control Im embedded in it. I think ultimately we're going to get to a place where we're going to have something like a pre-crime regime. And algorithmically, they're going to say, based on technocratic and totally objective metrics, certain populations pose certain dangers. And thus, the government has reason to act in a preemptive fashion to protect public health and safety. I, we are entering that sort of paradigm, and I have no sense at all that there is any sort of conservative response, that conservatives are even really aware of the brewing disasters that are going to befall us as a consequence of this. And the last thing that's worth noting is Barack Obama himself has taken credit for the crafting of this executive order. That's probably pretty much everything you need to know about where it ultimately ends up. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think... Um the idea behind this, right, is is the same 
And it's, it's an idea that I can't reject uh, out of hand as firmly as maybe I would have five or six years ago. But the, you know, the concept behind it is very Wilsonian, right? That, that the idea that constitutional government uh, is inadequate to deal with this kind of, of um, technological transformation um, and, and that therefore this has to be handed over uh, to, to the administrative state. Um, as though that that technocratic management is somehow devoid of politics, right? That that um, it, it can be done in this sort of detached and scientific way. Well, um, this EO, among other things, shows that it can't be, and that everything and the decisions that we make about AI and everything else as a political body are infused with politics, um, and that is inextricable from that that process. Um, you know, I, I obviously. Um, like like anyone who is not uh, exactly in the field of AI struggle to understand some things about it, um, about the the sort of threats that it poses, whether that's through uh, use by this regime or through the the notion um, of of AI itself, and uh, the challenges that I think it really poses to this kind of uh, view of human beings themselves as a series of impulses and neural networks. Right, um, I think that AI does in some ways force us to confront. Uh, something that is is <laughs> uh, much deeper, which is you know whether whether there is anything to human beings beyond the material, and if if we could like duplicate in some way uh, the process, the physical processes of our brains, whether you know in fact we do have souls or something separate from from the physical. Um, so I, I mean I, I don't think this is going to go away, um, and it does seem on some level like a question that it's hard to imagine. You know, going way back to uh, to uh, Stuart um, talking about like the internet as a series of tubes and having like the horses gallop the troops. Anybody is uh, old enough to remember those kinds of viral, early viral internet moments when uh, the, our government, our constitutional government and democratic government was trying to regulate the internet, right? Um, and it does seem like a ridiculous thing when you see these like old guys stand up, they don't understand, they understand much less even than we four do. Um, and, and they're the ones who are ostensibly regulating, but there is this I think if anything, uh, other other uh, sort of political challenges over the course of the last several decades has taught us is that turning over these kinds of questions to the experts is in fact worse than even sort of the ignorance of of democratic governance. That there have to there, the, it's very very important to preserve in this and as in all questions important political questions to preserve the kind of accountability uh, to the American people um, that is just completely lacking in the grandiosity of this EO. Yeah, and to your point as well, um, in addition to democratic governance having the ability to hold people accountable, but instinct is also really important in conversations about these new emerging technologies. And I share your concern, Inez, about what this means in terms of a general connection to humanity and how we view humanity. And I have a colleague who uses AI on a daily basis, AI tools, and he describes it as basically a uh, personal assistant to um, help his human capacity not to subvert it or replace it. And I've seen these screenshots of people using AI tools and they have you know boundaries on what you're allowed to ask or what the answers are on things like race and gender, which goes back to this executive order that Sarab is talking about, if the government is being involved in these types of decisions as to what the AI tools are allowed to say, or um, who they're allowed to help the most, those kinds of questions, um, we're getting into a place where very quickly, this is another tool for the regime to 
control speech, control thought. And uh, I find that very concerning. We'll transition now to Ines. Yeah, and, and uh, once again, I feel like this has been a, a slate of, of issues that uh, I, I feel inadequate to uh, really offer any deep insight on, but I'll just lay out the facts and and see what you three think about this. I, I often think about the UK as a kind of advance flag warning for where the United States will end up um, if, if it sort of more wholly surrenders to this driftward left over time. Um, I think of them as our, our cousins, our brothers, uh, who have sort of uh, lost even the impulses uh, in, in many ways that that Americans have, like Americans famously much more willing to fly the flag, um, especially in the interior part of the country, um, and still have some people in government um, who are willing to say obvious things? Well, it seems like one of the last people uh, in the conservative government of the United of the United Kingdom to say obvious things has just been sacked for it. Um, Suella Braberman uh, has written a great letter, um, basically laying out the failures of that party to deal with um, what what she came into office trying to do, which is uh, she has a series of of um, specific policy proposals that have to do exactly with the structure of, of the UK, but um, in terms of, of immigration, but her, the catalyst for her losing her job as Home Secretary seems to be uh, that she wrote this this uh, op-ed for the, the Times, um, not the New York Times, <laughs> uh, basically saying stating the obvious, that the mass protests on the streets uh, since the October 7th massacre in Israel um, have been hateful uh that and that specifically the police in the uk um have not been equally enforcing the law that when these protests run afoul of the law in the uk which is much more speech restrictive than the similar law in the united states because we have the first amendment um that that essentially uh, the police have been reluctant to enforce the law when it's about uh these these pro-palestinians um protests in the street uh, but are, you know, strongly, uh, if you look at like the composition of those those protests, um, it shows the the sort of demographic transformation of Britain um, over over the last few dem- uh, decades. So uh, Suella Braverman, one of the few people who was willing to say this in, in, in uh, a clear way, um, apparently not only is she hated by the left uh, in the UK for this, but um, the, the conservative party is getting rid of her and finding that voice, quote unquote, too extreme. Um, I don't know what you guys all think about this. I, like I said, I'm not like an expert in sort of UK politics, but it does seem to me um, to be really bad news uh, for our future as well. Uh, if if a, a type of, of Quellebeckian submission uh, playbook actually plays out first in the UK and, and not in France, where uh, recently there was a huge pro-Israeli demonstration in France and seems to be more actually uh, appetite in France for um, not only for supporting Israel, uh, which is not a particularly historical uh, connection, but but also for for preserving their own culture. And there seems to be like sort of more life and kicking um, in, in, in that country than in the UK. So I'm wondering where you see the future of this. Do you think that um, these kinds of demographic transformations, which are obviously far beyond what's happened in, in the United States, specifically with regard to Muslim immigrants, um, you know, what's the future of the UK and what does it say about the future of America? 
There was a Ross Douthat tweet that I thought really summed this up really well. Uh, he said, imagine a world where Nikki Haley, having successfully succeeded Donald Trump without an intervening election, fired J.D. Vance as attorney general and appointed George W. Bush as her secretary of state. That's roughly this week in British conservatism. Putting aside all those specific personality analogies, I do think that this is a very clear reminder that um, political realignments and political revolutions are extraordinarily fragile and they have every inch of ground has to be fought for. So whereas, you know, President Trump getting elected in 2016 and Brexit occurring around the same time, um, you know, uh, feel like very similar phenomenon. The difference is, is that you know, whereas Nigel Farage left the scene in the United Kingdom, Donald Trump stayed in it and continues to exert significant pressure on the American Republican Party and conservative movement, a pressure that does not seem to be as president, present in the UK for a whole variety of reasons. Um, I think that almost more sinister than Sola Braverman getting fired is Daniel Cameron getting rehired into the conservative government because it's proof that um, they, they fully intend on returning to their own version of the dead consensus, a kind of soft neoliberal conservative party that has very little to offer its country. I think this is also a reminder that immigration is in some ways the, the architectonic issue in all of politics. Who constitutes your country is ultimately a decision that will decide what kind of politics you have. And a lot of the reason why um, these things are so politically controversial in the United Kingdom is because of the mass migration of people from Asia and the Middle East that's occurred over the last several decades. And because we haven't gone as far down that rabbit hole as the United Kingdom and Europe more broadly has, we would be very wise to prevent ourselves from making those mistakes in the coming years with the most obvious immediate risk factor being uh, the proposals that I'm sure will quickly emerge to you know, invite millions of Palestinian refugees into the United States because of the war going on between Israel and Palestine. Dialing in a little bit further on some of uh, the specific complaints about Rishi Sunak as well in this resignation letter, because it plays right into Inez's point about is this a warning signal for what could happen in the United States, is that Braverman said that in exchange for supporting Rishi's rise to PM, that one of the other things that he would agree to do was to issue this guidance, um, unequivocal statutory guidance, she said, that recognized biological sex, single sex spaces and parents' right to know what their children are taught. And this is an exact debate that we're having in the United States in terms of the parents who are showing up at school board meetings. But interestingly, the UK has actually started to, I would say, go backwards. Um, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but to unwind the clock, so to speak, on some of the European guidance on how we treat minors who have gender dysphoria, the Dutch model, has kind of fallen out of fashion. And uh, a lot of European countries, including the UK, have started to exercise more caution when it comes to the prescription of, uh, of hormone therapy or puberty blockers, and of course, gender reassignment surgery for minors. Um, so to see that even though they've taken that tack and they've started, started to unwind the clock, that there's still this resistance from uh, PM Sunak to enact an actual policy that would enshrine biological sex as a real delineation, a real marker um, on behalf of the UK government is kind of interesting. And I, I think almost gives me a little bit more hope in the US because 
we've had a lot of our politicians and government leaders actually be willing to be a bit more aggressive on that particular issue. Um, whereas our medical community, it seems like our medical community and our politicians are opposite of the stances that are being taken in the UK on this specific issue. And, and that's a particularly interesting trend to me. And I'm not sure what exactly it says about our future in terms of the way that we treat gender dysphoria, particularly among minors. But the fact that that was included in this resignation letter um, was quite fascinating. Yeah, that is an interesting point. I've, I've long held that Europe and obviously every European country has its own characteristics. So this is painting with a broad brush, but is generally speaking 10 years ahead of us or so in terms of down the progressive curve. But it is interesting that on the trans issue, that is the one, maybe the singular issue where actually the science there is far ahead of where our science is in America. I, I was struck reading the Braverman letter, how and this was the word I was grasping, grasping for before, the failure theater among Republicans. This looks like exactly the same in terms of the where conservatives are and where the establishment is and how the establishment betrays conservatives repeatedly. It reads very much in that sort of mold. And, you know, maybe that's to some extent uh, me projecting onto it. But I think it's accurate that you know, the prime minister is supposed to be defending sovereignty and order and combating essentially the ravages of totally unchecked migration that has been antithetical to what the UK is supposed to be about and you know, probably undermined to a large extent the gains of Brexit and has failed to live up to it. And then Braverman gets fired essentially as a consequence of it. Uh, but I think this does speak to the fact that you know, again, uh, to Saurabh's point on sovereignty and immigration, this is sort of the dividing issue because literally who you are as a country dictates everything. And if you don't have any respect for who your people are and defending your borders and your sovereignty, then you will become the country that you imported. And that is what we are seeing right now on the streets of UK and all across much of Western Europe. We'll transition now to final thoughts. We'll start with Inez. Any thoughts on any of the stories that uh, we've discussed today or or anything else from the news? Sure. Um, you know, it, it, it's a question that I've thought about quite a bit, uh, Ben, what you're raising about and why it is that uh, actually on this one issue of of uh, transition on um, among minors, uh, we've, we've seen a resistance in the UK and in Europe uh, that we haven't seen in America, I, I tend to think, and again, of course, we're painting with a very broad brush. Um, I, I tend to think that actually Americans don't defer to experts nearly as much as people in the UK, the average person, I should say, in the UK or in in Europe, uh, but their experts are more expert Um and, and because they value that kind of bureaucratic expertise, I think more than America does, um, that I think they end up with a class of expert that where you clearly see, um, sorry, that's my dog, but um, you clearly see like on an issue where it becomes undeniable, like the mutilation of minors actually has bad uh, effects. Uh, I think sometimes the, the scientific establishment in, in Europe and the UK will actually reverse itself in a way that the American scientific establishment is sort of all a bunch of uh, sort of woke political officers who um, are not good at their jobs in addition to having a political perspective. Um, but but my my final thought that I wanted to, to briefly touch on is um, the sort of ignorance of uh, some of the 
the protesters in the United States, um, which I really think that uh, in previous weeks, I've touched on the fact that I, I think the protests, the pro-Palestine protests uh, in the United States are widening into a, a more general leftist unrest in the street that we saw are closer to something that we saw in 2020 um, with a new cause replacing it. I think there's good evidence that that's, that's so. I mean, we saw them tearing down American flags uh, over over the weekend here in New York. Um, but so people are dunking on these protesters' ignorance. A lot of them are are have no idea about any of the things in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? There, are, there's all these videos asking people, you know, which river and which sea are you even talking about when you chant from the river to the sea? They have no idea. This is very easy and fun to dunk on. But I do want to point out that they know who their friends and enemies are, uh, and and they they sort of know where the divisions they stand where they stand on this conflict because they think that all the oppressors stand together in their worldview. Um, and so they understand very well which side of this this conflict they are on, even though they don't know any of the specifics. Um, and I think actually that's less dunkable and more a recognition of, of certain realities about uh, who's a friend and who's an enemy. And so I actually, I don't think it's uh, quite as um, funny as other people seem to think when, when they have no idea which river and which sea, uh, but what they do have a strong idea about is who are their enemies, who are their friends. Um, and that's something that they know much better than large parts of the right. So I don't think that's, that's quite worth, uh, laughing at as much as some people seem to enjoy. Anyway, uh, that's it for me this week. So I'll jump in with a uh, brief comment apropos of nothing. Uh, there's been a lot of focus, obviously, on the state of so-called higher education and our elite educational institutions. And you know, one of the aspects of this that has come up is foreign funding of schools. And to what extent does foreign funding of schools corrupt the schools, uh, change the content of the curricula, who the professors are, what kind of decisions, leadership within colleges and universities take? Uh, and and ultimately, to what extent is that money corrupting? And to my mind, I think it's almost definitionally corrupting, whether or not there are explicit strings attached to funding of schools or not. And to me, this raises kind of a, a deeper question of what is the purpose of the of the academy as an institution in this country? Now, I think I would argue that it ought to be about the pursuit of truth and knowledge, and that's certainly justifiable. Uh, and one might ask the pursuit of truth and knowledge, and then what's that in pursuit of ultimately? And as a pursuit in and of itself, there's obviously a great case to be made that may that that is the purpose of the academy. But obviously, I think another purpose of the academy ought to be contributing to the strength of the nation. And to the extent you think of universities and certainly as research institutions, I think this is almost definitionally true. To the extent you think that universities and colleges are also ought to be a strategic asset of a nation that contributes to its strength, I think it raises questions about foreign funding broadly. Uh, and certainly whether there should be any sort of government largesse or otherwise uh, privileges granted to institutions that take foreign money that obviously could be corrupting and antithetical to the strength of the nation. So something I'll be thinking about and perhaps writing about in the days of the head is ahead is kind of what is the purpose of the academy? To what extent does foreign funding corrupt that purpose? And on these to be thought of 
as institutions that are supposed to strengthen the nation rather than ultimately fuel its demise by seating all of our elite and most powerful institutions with people who loathe Western civilization and want to see it overturned. My final thoughts are uh, somewhat uh, aligned with Inez in that on Capitol Hill today, a number of congressional uh, members decided to go and view the video tapes of the Hamas attacks on October 7th. And it said that many of the members left crying. Many could not even stay through the duration of the video and audio clips that they were shown. Uh, Congresswoman AOC, who has been one of the most vocal individuals in terms of calling for a ceasefire on Israel's behalf, um, was apparently uh, quite visibly crying as she left. They screened the attack. And I think it says something a little bit deeper about humanity and um, how we may have lost some of our capacity for compassion, that so many members of the political left who have been justifying what Hamas did and have been very vocally pro-Palestine had to actually see the acts that were committed against women, children, and innocent civilians in order to feel that emotional gut punch. It shouldn't take you having to watch a video of a child being dragged into the street and shot in order for you to be upset about it. And um, it's a reminder of how selective I think the left's compassion is. They claim to be the political side that is um, most interested in protecting vulnerable humans. But in this particular case because they find themselves aligned politically with uh, Arab Americans and Palestinian Americans, they were able to so conveniently ignore the atrocities that happened on October 7th until they quite literally were shoved into their face. Yeah, it's absolutely horrific to see, um, you know, the the callousness with which the political left in the United States has, has approached these issues. And so for my final thought, tying it together with, with my story as well. Um, I think this Israel-Palestine conflict, Biden's approach on AI, and a whole suite of other stories that you see in the news every day are proof that um, not participating in politics is no longer an option for many of our elite class that more than happily privately tell you that they oppose woke this or they think maybe the border's a little bit out of control. You're suddenly seeing a lot of kind of centrist Jewish billionaire types uh, wake up and realize maybe I'm going to stop funding my college campuses um, that I've been giving millions and millions of dollars to over the years because I've clearly been funding an ideological cesspool. And you're starting to see members of, of Silicon Valley realize that, you know, whereas Democrats might have a cool Beyonce concert at their inauguration. They actually don't have their interests in mind when it comes to innovation. It's proof that, that opting out of the political process or sitting by while other people get their hands dirty is no longer an option available. And so uh, whether or not you are interested in politics, uh, politics is certainly interested in you and you applies to basically every single person, industry, movement, and group in the United States today. So there's no excuse for not being involved. Um, on behalf of Ben, Inez, and Amber, and myself, thank you for tuning in. I'm Saurabh Sharma. We'll see you at the next NatConsulot.